I'd ask you to turn this morning to John chapter 9. So take your Bibles, turn to John 9. So fourth book in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Find the big number nine. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're taking a one-week break from the Romans study. So just for one week, we're going to jump out of Romans, look at this narrative. But I want you to see this morning, this is not disconnected from the book of Romans. In fact, what you're going to find in this account is a real-life example of the salvation that Romans is all about. Romans is teaching us about salvation. Here we have a real-life fantastic example, theology and technicolor, if you will. Great story, great account, and as we enter John 9, give you a little context here. We're at a point in Jesus' ministry where things are starting to heat up between him and the religious leaders. In fact, if you glance to the end of chapter 8, you see that in the last couple verses of chapter 8, the religious leaders actually attempt to murder Jesus. But Jesus disappears, he vanishes, and he escapes. So they're not able to. But we're talking about a time in Jesus' ministry where he's getting attention, where people see him, and not always the good kind of attention. The leaders are not happy with Jesus, and so here's what's happening as we come into chapter 9, and we come to chapter 9, and it says, as he passed by, the first couple words here. So we're somewhere in or near Jerusalem, we don't know exactly where, but the when is right around the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's what's going on. Let's read this fascinating account in John 9. And we're going to walk through John 9 in three acts, all right? So Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. We'll spend a lot of time on Act 1, a little less time on Act 2, and a very small amount of time on Act 3. But first 1 through 12, I want to read for you first, Act 1, the display. So read along with me as I read John 9, verses 1 through 12. Here's what God's Word says in John 9, verse 1. As he, that's Jesus, as he passed by... He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world." And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing, verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, "It, It is he. And others said, No, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I'm the man. And so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. So here we have the very first part of the passage here, Act 1, the display. We see a man who has been uh, born blind, so congenital blindness. Ever since he was a baby, ever since he first opened his eyes as a baby, he could see nothing. And Jesus notices this man. We see Jesus taking the initiative. They're walking by, they're passing by. Jesus notices this guy. And then the disciples ask an interesting question. They say, Jesus, why is this guy blind? 
Surely it's because of some sin. Is it his sin? Is it his parents' sin? So their assumption is that suffering is connected to sin. There's got to be some sin going on because this poor guy has suffered since he was born. Now that's, a, that's an interesting thought because either, there's only two options, either this man sinned in utero because he's born blind, or it's his parents' sin that it, he's suffering the consequences of. But what about their assumption? Is that true, that sin is always connected to suffering, that suffering is always connected to sin? Their assumption is that bad things don't happen to good people. Well, in one way, yes, it is true that our suffering is tied to sin. Just remember back a little bit ago when I preached from Romans 3, verses 3 through 5, and I gave you a definition of suffering. I don't know if you remember what that was, but here's the definition I gave you for suffering. The pain and hardships that come because sin has marred everything. What is suffering in this world? It is the effects of sin marring everything. So on one hand, yes, all suffering can be tied to sin, Adam's sin. The very first fall, yes, that's true. But the disciples are somewhat misguided here because they're saying that our personal suffering is always connected to our personal sin or at least somebody's sin. But that's not true. Aren't there many times in life where our difficulties, where our trials, where our infirmities seem to have no discernible reason to them? We can't point to any one particular person's sin. As far as we know, we haven't sinned against God. Sometimes it is connected to sin, but many times it is not. I think about Job's encouragers, put that in quotation, right? His encouragers, they say, Job, you had to have done something wrong because God is very upset with you. Look at your life. It's falling apart. So search your heart and figure out what is wrong. See, they had the same assumption that suffering is tied to, personal suffering is tied to personal sin. And that good people don't suffer. That somehow you must have done something wrong. But Jesus gives a third option, doesn't he? He says right here, he says, well, it's not that the man sinned and it's not that his parents sinned. Of course, they both had. But he's saying that's not why he was born blind. There's a third option. And notice what Jesus says. He says, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's a great phrase there. Why was the man born blind? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. In him, I'll say it this way, our lives are designed to display Jesus. Our lives are designed to display Jesus. So that means that we exist, you exist, I exist. With all of our strengths and all of our uniquenesses and all of our weaknesses, all of our infirmities, all the good things about us, the things we don't like about us, it's all packaged together so that we are a unique person that God will display his works through. That's why we're here. And that's why we are what we are, who we are, how we are. So that means that whatever you're good at, you're good at it so that you can display Jesus. And I think we get this. Like this makes sense to us. But if you're good at numbers and you know, you know okay, I want to be a Christian who's the best mathematician, the best accountant, the best financial planner, uh, engineer, what, whatever God's called you to do, you say, okay, I am, this is a strength of mine, this is a gift of mine, so I do that for God's glory. And that makes sense. Where I think it makes a little less sense is where I say this, your weaknesses, my weaknesses, are given to us to display God's glory. The things that you're not good at, the things that you're not good at at all, those are given to you, your shortcomings, so that God might get glory. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh. I mean, how many times did he beg God to take away from him the thorn in the flesh? Does God do it? 
Does God take away his thorn in the flesh? You remember? Yes or no? No, he does not. And why does he not? He says, so that his grace is sufficient and that his power is made perfect in weakness. So we have this weakness, we have this infirmity, we have this thing that we don't like about ourselves. Why? According to Jesus in John 9, it's so that God might display his works through us. You could write it down this way if you want. Our deficiency is God's opportunity to show up and show off. So your deficiency, whatever it is, fill in the blank, it's, it's an opportunity for God to show up and to show off. Our deficiency is God's opportunity. See, when we have something that is a, a, a weakness, then God's strength is shown. And I find this to be particularly good news. Because you're, if you're sitting there this morning, you have something about the, you that you don't really like, something that you wish was different, maybe something that you've asked God to change, something for, for God to take away. I don't know what it is. could be a situation in life. could be a, a, a trait that you have. I don't know, but I, I know from the text that God has allowed that so that he might display his works through you. Just last week, I shared a story. I'm not going to recount the whole thing, but basically, I talked about a man in this church who all of a sudden, in, in midlife, started struggling with anxiety, difficult anxiety. He describes it as the most difficult thing, the darkest time he's ever experienced. And he's like, God, why? Where did this come from? What is going on? And just a few weeks after that, he had a conversation with a friend, an unbelieving friend who also says, I struggle with anxiety too. They start talking about what God was doing, and the guy comes to Christ, and his wife comes to Christ, and his daughter comes to Christ, and now they just talk to me after the service and said, hey, can we get baptized? So that's all because God used a weakness, something that we would look at and go, God, I don't want this. I wish you could just take this away. And God's saying, no, I'm going to display my works through you. So whatever it is this morning that you're wishing wasn't there, not only are your strengths given to you, but your weaknesses are given to you to display God's glory. Here we have a man whose weakness is congenital blindness. He has never seen, I mean, he has never seen the color red. He doesn't know what it looks like. He's never seen a sunset. He doesn't know the face of his parents. He doesn't know anyone's face. He's lived in darkness his entire life. And Jesus looks at this man, and he has compassion. Now, to be sure, this isn't the first time that Jesus notices this guy. God, he's God. He already knew when he woke up that morning that today I'm going to overcome this man's blindness. He knows. He saw this man before he passed by him. But when he passes by, he sees the man, he notices him, and he has compassion. His heart breaks. See, it's not that God is in heaven grinning as this baby's born blind and as the baby suffers and the kid suffers, God is like, oh, I love the suffering that this child is experiencing because of what I'm going to do. No, it's, it's actually that God overcomes and overwhelms this deficiency to use it. God has compassion. God has a heart, but he takes the things about us when we suffer and he uses them. And then he says something interesting in verse 4 and 5, Jesus. He says this. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night's coming. He basically says, while I'm here, I'm the light of the world. But he says, we must work the works of God while it is still day. Because all of us know that our time is short. James compares our life to a vapor. It's here and it's gone. How many more days do I have on this earth? How many more days do you have? Well, I don't know, but I know one day that yet less than yesterday. And our time is short. Jesus is saying, while it's day, while we're here, while we're on this earth, we need to do the works of God. We need to display Jesus. And that's what Jesus was about, was displaying his Father, showing the glory of God. And us too, we don't know how long we have here. 
when we close our eyes that final time and night comes, there will be no more day. There will be no more opportunity to display Jesus Christ. So can I ask you, how are you doing with that? If you're a child or a teenager, you have a lot of your life ahead of you, Lord willing. How are you doing with displaying Jesus? Are you doing that now? If you're mid- middle age, and I'm clearly that now, 40 is, I'm solidly middle age, okay? How are we doing? It's a midlife check. Like, how am I doing at displaying Jesus? It's daytime right now, night's coming, I won't be here anymore. Maybe you're in the twilight years. How are you doing with it? This is not to make you feel terrible. This is rather to encourage you. It's not too late. From this point on, we can display Jesus. We can talk about Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't just offer inspiring words about doing God's work. Yes, I do God's work. He puts his money where his mouth is, and what does he do with this man? He heals him. And it is such an amazing story. And what it shows us is that he's master over everything, even the deepest, darkest struggle you have, whatever it is, he's master over it. He can take it, he can turn it, and he can use it for his glory. And the way that he heals this man, you probably noticed, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's, there's a lot of debate about this and speculation why Jesus did what he did or how exactly he healed him. I don't want to get caught up in speculation. I just want to note a couple things. So note with me these, these things. He uses spit and he uses dirt. All right, spit is usually something that pollutes. Like spit is not something that we like. If somebody spits on you, especially on your face, you're not like, thank you. No, it's disgusting. It's usually spit is something that we would say, oh. But with Jesus, his spit doesn't pollute, it heals. That's uh, that's pretty amazing. And he uses dirt. Now, way back in Genesis 2, God used dirt, and he, he, he bent down, he scooped up dirt, and what did he do? He formed man. He made the first human using dirt. And here we have Jesus taking dirt and recreating, creating sight. He's, he's making, or, or whatever, optic nerves and cones and retinas and the things in your eyes. Now, maybe they were there, but they weren't connected. They weren't working. And so he creates using dirt. He uses spit. He uses dirt. And then this, this final thing that really stands out to me that I love about this is I love how our Savior comes close. He comes close and he touches the man's eyes. Not he touches eyelids. He touches eyeballs. I don't know. But he comes close and he touches the man. Now, he wouldn't have to do that. He could stand there and on some occasions he said, you're healed. Or the one woman just touched his robe and she was healed. But he chooses to come close and he chooses to touch this man. We do not have a distant Savior, one who just remains in heaven and looks at our suffering and says, Oh, hope that works out okay for you. Or just from heaven declares things. I mean, we have a Savior who incarnated, who became flesh, who came to this earth and walked among us. And that day when Jesus walked home, he had mud under his fingernails. He got dirty. Because that's the kind of Savior we have. We have a Savior who comes close and touches this guy. Now, the guy can't see, right? So that means all of his other senses are heightened. So he can feel. And what does he think as he feels Jesus touching his eyes? and the cool mud on his eyes. What is, he, what is he feeling? What is he thinking? How many people had touched him recently? Here we have a, a Savior who loves us. And there was something different about this guy because the man obeys. He slowly shuffles to Siloam and he, he washes. He could have been thinking the whole time, this is ridiculous. Mud, spit. I've been to Siloam before. Like nothing is going to happen. I don't know, but he obeys and he goes and then maybe to his amazement, Jesus' cure works. 
And, and I try to imagine what this would be like. I, I don't know if you can imagine with me, but I have no frame of reference, but here's a man who, who, who rinses his eyes and he blinks, and all of a sudden a whole new world is open to him. He can see all the things that he had been hearing. He can see all the things that he had felt, and he's like, oh, that's what a tree is like. I was way off. <laughs> or he just sees people's faces. I, I can't even imagine. And the closest thing that I can think of is when I've watched those YouTube videos where really colorblind people, like they can see no color almost, they get those in-chroma glasses. Have you seen any of these YouTube videos? Has anyone seen them? Go home and, and go on YouTube and search en-chroma e glasses. It's fascinating because somebody who most of their life, their whole life up to that point, has never seen colors vividly, puts these glasses on. And it's always a gift from a family member, you know, and they get them together and say, hey, here's your present. And they open and go, glasses? And they put them on. And in every time I've seen, the person starts crying. And the family member starts crying. Why? Because it's overwhelming. It's like I've never seen the world before like I was supposed to see the world. So I guarantee you this guy is crying. He is overwhelmed with just the amazement of seeing things for the very first time. And I try to imagine this. He decides to go back to his neighborhood and he starts to see people that he's known his whole life, he's heard his whole life. And that's when the overwhelming really begins because all of a sudden he's thrust into the spotlight and he is questioned. And the neighbors, they don't know what to do with this man's transformation. We'll read about it in a second. But this kind of thing doesn't happen. Like it doesn't happen. And so, so, so there's really two options here. The neighbors are going, well, either this is a different guy who's an imposter who looks like him. Some are like, well, it's not him, but it looks like him. It must be an evil twin or something. Or there's the second option, which is that this joker has been fooling us the whole time. He's not blind. So I want my money back, and I want my bread back, and I want everything that I've done for this guy because he's never been blind. He's been playing us for 30, 40 years, or however old the man is. And so they're trying to figure this out, and the guy just keeps saying, guys, it's me. It's me. And I don't know if he had like a distinguishable tattoo or something that he could say, hey, guys, it's me. But all of a sudden, they're going, it is him. Like, this is the guy. So then they say, well, what happened? Like, what happened? And I love the man's response. Did you notice how simple the man's response is? And this is important for us to see today. His response is simply to tell the story. He just says simply, guys, this is what happened. This is it. It's all I know. There's a lot of things I don't know, but one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. And this man's Christology is not that developed yet. Notice how he first refers to Jesus. He says, the guy they call Jesus, the man that they refer to as Jesus, his evangelism isn't shiny. It's not hammered out quite yet. But all he knows is that Jesus did something for him, period. And so that's what he says. This is what Jesus did. And it's that simple. I want to also say that our lips are created to talk about Jesus. So our lives, yeah, they're designed to display Jesus. Our lips are created to talk about Jesus. So this guy is talking about Jesus. Notice this. We are not responsible to share what we don't know. We're only responsible to share what we do know. So they asked him some questions like, hey, where is this Jesus? Now, I don't know if it was like, oh, really? Jesus? Where's that guy? Like, you're making this up. Or if it was like, literally, where is Jesus? But either way, he doesn't know. He never even saw Jesus. He couldn't pick him out of a lineup if he, if he wanted to. He doesn't know. And he says, I don't know. And later on, they asked him about Jesus' sin. He said, I don't know. This is what I know. And that tells me that you are responsible to just share what you know. 
You're not responsible to share all the things that you don't know. Because there's a lot of things that you go, man, I just don't know about that passage in the Bible. I don't know why God did that. I don't understand this. You're not responsible for that. You're responsible for what you do know. If you know that Jesus has changed you and you know that you're different, then you talk about that. You just start with Jesus. Say, here's what Jesus did for me. And that's really important because one of the biggest inhibitors for us sharing Jesus is all the things we don't know. Well, leave those to the side and just say, here's what I know. Hey, Jesus changed me. One thing I want you to notice here, the man begins to talk about Jesus before he even fully understands who he is. So he does not wait till his theology is full formed. And now he's finally at the place where he gets it all. He just starts talking about Jesus. I think that's important because God wants you to talk about Jesus even if you don't have it all figured out yet. Even if you got saved a week ago, God wants you to start talking, to open your lips and to share. And I've talked to Christians before and they go, I, I, I don't really do evangelism. Like I know I'm supposed to, but I don't really do evangelism. Like, and I think we often think of evangelism so, in such a scary way, like it's get up on a soapbox and start preaching a sermon and I've talked to another person the other day, and they said, yeah, I want to go on that go trip because they want construction workers. I don't really do evangelism, but, like, I'll, I'll build some stuff. And I'm like, what I did was I helped them understand evangelism. So evangelism isn't some different, crazy thing. It's do what you do and do what you like to do and do what God has gifted you to do, and along the way, open your lips and talk about Jesus. So if you're a construction worker, you do construction, and then you talk about Jesus. If you're an artist, you do art, you find a class for painting and you do it and you meet people and you open your lips and you talk about Jesus. See, it's not something that we're supposed to hate, the, the most hateful thing in, in the world. Like, I don't want to, it's supposed to be an, an outflow of what we are already doing, who we are, how God's wired you. And so I explained to the person, you love construction? Awesome. That's what evangelism is. Go do the construction and along the way, talk about Jesus. That's what it is. I believe that our inability to articulate what God has done for us grieves the heart of God. I do, because I think of Matthew 10, and Matthew 10 says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, Jesus says, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, you need to acknowledge me before, you need to tell people that you know me. Okay, so this blind man was on earth to display Jesus, and so are we. Jesus is the light of the world. He wants his light to be shown, and he wants his light to be beautiful. But unfortunately, not everyone's going to see Jesus' light as beautiful. Some people see the light of Jesus, and they're repelled by it. That brings us to the second act here, which is the division. John 9, verse 13 through 34, I want to read this chunk here, and I just want you to see as we read, there are some people who believe Jesus is the hero, and there are some people who believe he is the villain. But notice the division here in John 9, 13 through 34. So read along as I read. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. So again they're pressing him, how? And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, how do you say, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Verse 18. 
The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? They should know if he's their son, right? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. They remember that well. But how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. So the parents kind of punt here, and they realize in verse 22, it's because they're afraid. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So it's like, thanks, mom and dad. Thank you. I appreciate your support here. But they're, they're, they're afraid. They don't want to be kicked out of the synagogue, so they fail to talk about it. And, and quite honestly, they don't, know, they don't know as much as the man. They're just figuring it out. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called to the man who had been born blind. So again, they're asking him. They say, give glory to God. That phrase means be honest. Tell the truth. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Again, they're asking him, how? Tell us the particulars because we want to know how to pin Jesus to the wall here. We, th- we think he broke the Sabbath. And I love his response. This guy's response, his response is classic. All of a sudden, he gets extremely salty. He gets really cheeky. He starts to respond in a way that's sarcastic. And I don't know where this boldness came from, but I have to believe that when he steps out on faith and he starts talking about Jesus, Holy Spirit empowers him. And he says this, he goes... He says in verse 27, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And of course he knows they don't want to be. He's razzing them a little bit. In verse 28, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where this man comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Notice what he says, verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you teach us? And they cast him out. This guy's getting some boldness. God is empowering him. Verse 16 spells it out. There was a division among them. There's some people who say, Jesus, there's something about him. And others who go, this guy is an imposter. This guy is trouble. There's really a division of two different visions, two ways of seeing Jesus. Here's the best way to describe it, I think. When Jesus shines, the blind see, and those who see, quotation marks, are blinded. When Jesus shines, the blind see, and those who see are blinded. And I get this from the very end of the chapter. So you can go ahead and peek a little bit towards the end of the chapter. I think we even have it on the screen. But verse 39 through 41, so the end here, here's where I get this. He said, this is the man, I'm sorry, verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see or think they see may become blind. Now, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Jesus, are you saying we're blind? Are we also blind? And Jesus says to them, he says something very, very smart. He says, 
If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So when Jesus shines, those that are truly blind, who know they're blind, they see. And those who think they see, who see, are blinded. It all comes down to how you're looking at Jesus. Let me illustrate it this way. Light can both provide illumination and it can also provide um, blindness. So if I'm standing right in the spotlight here, you can see me pretty well. But if I look directly at the spotlight, which is painful, and I just did that for you, um, I see little spots over all of your heads. Okay? It's hard. I'm blinded by that light, and I don't want to look at it too long. It's offensive. It's annoying. And so it's all how you're looking at the light. If you're against the light, then it repels you. But if the light is illuminating in front of you, it does what it's designed to do. So a light can be seen very different ways. I'd also illustrate it this way. You ever been driving and you see somebody with those Xenon HID headlights? And on one hand, you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. On the other hand, you're like, what a jerk. Like, I, 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 it's so annoying. Those lights are so bright because I'm coming against them. I always, I always would say, say when they first came out, I'm like, how are they illegal, you know? Now, you don't have to admit it, but somebody here probably has them on their car, and they are amazing. I don't have them myself, but I've, I've watched the comparisons, and they're the brightest lights you can get. It illuminates the path in an amazing way. But when you're coming against them, nah, it's not something you want to see. It's very frustrating. And so it is with Jesus Christ. Those that often see the light of Jesus and they're against Jesus, it repels them. Or they see a Christian coming down the pike with their light blaring and they're like, get away from me. But see, if they were able to see a different perspective, if they were able to see it a different way, they would understand that Jesus makes sense of everything. Jesus illuminates everything. See the blind see. And those that think they can see are blinded. So let's talk about this man who was blind and can see. He, he receives physical sight. And that is a, an amazing thing. That is a phenomenon all of itself. But you know his physical blindness was, was meant to picture what was going on inside of him. He was also spiritually blind, and all of a sudden he was given spiritual sight. And did you notice his progression of understanding? I mean, just look with me for a second. And you won't see this up on the screen, but if you have your Bible open, verse 11, the, he, he refers to Jesus as the man called Jesus. That's all he knows. Verse 17, he says, he is a prophet. So now, that's like the greatest compliment he can give right now. He just, I know he's a prophet, okay? Verse 27, he says to the Pharisees, do you also want to become his disciple? Which means he's saying, I'm his disciple. Are you going to join me? Verse, verse 33, he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So there's a transformation happening right before our eyes in this text, and I love it. And I love it for a few reasons, but here's one of the main reasons I love it. Because what it teaches us is that as you step out on faith and you start talking about Jesus, God does something in you. God strengthens your faith. God informs you. And through his Holy Spirit, God directs you. We had a guy who doesn't know that much, but all of a sudden he's preaching a pretty good sermon to the Pharisees. And this is so true. If you're a Christian and you live your whole Christian life and you never open your lips and you never talk about Jesus, you will not gain something that you would gain otherwise. You will not be able to experience what it's like to talk to your neighbor or your friend about Jesus. Because here's what happens. You become keenly aware of your inadequacies. You know what I'm talking about. If you've ever shared Jesus, you feel very inadequate. One of my first times sharing my faith, I was with my friend. I was in high schooler. And we've been told in church we're supposed to share our faith, we're supposed to talk about Jesus. So I say to my, so I say to my friend, 
okay, the pizza guy's coming to deliver pizza. I got a track. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about Jesus. My friend's like, all right. So we go down the stairs, and the pizza guy rings the bell, and he opens the door, and I panic. I totally lose it, and I just take the track, and I throw it at the guy, and I go, read it. Just read it. And then we close the door, and we get our pizza, and my, my buddy's like, just read it? Like, that was really lame, man. <laughs> like, well, you aren't doing anything, right? But we become very aware of our inadequacies. When we talk about Jesus, we feel our inadequacies. But, but you know what we also feel? We feel the Holy Spirit's presence. We feel the empowerment that comes. We, we sense the sovereignty of God. We go, God, God worked that out. God did something there because I am inept, but God used me. And so when you step on a faith and you talk about Jesus like this guy does, God empowers you. God builds your faith. God teaches you things you will never learn if you don't open your mouth and talk about Jesus. Some people just never get there. You know, they, they might say things like this, and I haven't heard these actual things, at least not the first one. When we finish the book of Romans, like then I'll share Jesus. Because man, will my faith be strong, right? There's pillars, I'll, I'll be ready to share Jesus. Uh, it's going to be a while, so. Or, or somebody might say, when I conquer this sin, like when I get, finally, like, get this, because right now I'm a hypocrite, like I can't talk about Jesus, so like when I conquer that, well, I got news for you, if you see victory and you conquer that, guess what's going to happen? The Holy Spirit's going to make you aware of all this area and that area and this pride and all this stuff, okay? So that's not a a thing to to wait for, or when I read that book on evangelism, when I get trained, you know, then then I'll share my faith. This man who was born blind didn't wait now, he didn't have much of a choice, did he? He was thrown right in. It was sink or swim for this guy, but he does it. He just talks about what he does know, and he says, this is all I know. Here's what Jesus did for me. When we see something, we should say something. If you've seen Jesus work in your life, you should say something. I should say something. So those who are blind see, but those who see, who think they see, are blinded. So look at the Pharisees in this scripture. I mean, the Pharisees of all people should have recognized Jesus. I mean, no one else knew the word of God like the Pharisees. No one else knew the prophecies in Isaiah, several of them, Isaiah 29, 35, 42, where specifically it says the Messiah will open the eyes of the blind. He will give blind sight. How do they not see this? Well, their heart is made up, their mind is made up, and they are so blinded by their religiosity that they can't see Jesus, and they can't see the beauty of Jesus. No, they see the light of Jesus, and they're repelled from it. They go, "Uh uh-uh, no, I don't want that. That's offensive. That is, that's annoying. Their obsession with religious performance caused them to miss the whole point of religion, which is to point to Jesus. That's why we have religion. That's why God gave all the Old Testament law. They get completely derailed with Sabbath intricacies, and they, they miss it. In Mark 2, it says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant to serve man, not man serve the Sabbath. And so certainly the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Sabbath was made for him, for his use. He's not going to break the Sabbath. The Pharisees' understanding of Jesus was wrong, and their understanding of the Sabbath was wrong. They're trying to use the law to make sense of Jesus. They should have allowed Jesus to make sense of the law. They have it completely backwards here. And so the Pharisees, they angrily remind this guy. They go, listen, guy, you were born in utter sin. How dare you tell us, leaders of Israel, what things are like? You were born in utter sin. And their, their words are incredible to me. They are so full of ignorance and irony because not only are they admitting you were blind, 
They're saying, you were born blind, pal. That's why, because you were in utter sin. They're admitting that he really was blind and now he sees. So they've kind of shot themselves in the foot. But they also have these words that hang over them like an indictment. When they say, you were born in utter sin. Was he born in utter sin? It's kind of a tricky question because of what I talked about earlier. But was he born in complete sin? Was he a sinner when he was born? Yeah. And so is every, hum- every, every other human that was born, including the Pharisees. So they're saying, hey, pal, you were born in utter sin. Guess what? So were they. Every one of us is born sinful. And so they are indicting themselves when they say these words. Here's the crazy thing. The guy who was born blind can now see, and they're still in their blindness. So while we're all born spiritually blind, with congenital blindness, spiritually speaking, he now sees, and they are still blind. So if those who see are blinded, and, but the blind see, we start to understand what has to happen for somebody to come to faith. Well, it means you have to be blind before you can see. You have to realize that you truly are blind before you ever can see. That's what Jesus says. He says, Pharisees, you still can see, so you are basically blind. you got to be blind first, and then you see. And until we realize our ineptness, our inability, our spiritual blindness, we'll never see Jesus the right way. We'll see him, and he will repel us, or we will be repelled by him. Like the xenon headlights, we'll turn away with annoyance. However, if we can see Jesus from a different angle, if we can see, yes, I'm unable, but Jesus is beautiful, I'm unable, but Jesus is able. He went to the cross for me. He died in my place. Now things start to change. Now the scales come off. And this goes for those of us in our life who are without Christ. Those you know who are are unbelievers, that you work with, that you live next to. Those that don't know Jesus, they're seeing Jesus the wrong way. They're, they're, They're seeing him against him. They're blinded by the light. But what if you welcome them in? to the passenger seat, to take a road trip with you. And what I mean by that is, help them see life from your perspective. Spend time with them. Do life with them. So as they drive along with you, they can see how you handle life. The same things that they struggle with, the potholes in the road, the inclement weather, the construction zones. There are like 3,000 of them right now, okay? And And this is all metaphorical, of course. But they go through life with you, and they get to see that, you know what? Jesus actually illuminates things. Wow, I didn't realize that. I've been going against Jesus, but if they could look at it a different way, what could God do? Now, we'll never remove the offense of the cross, okay? There's still some people that are going to, every day of their life, they're going to say, nope, not for me, I don't want that. But I think a lot of people are annoyed by our presentation of it, the way that we are self-righteous rather than annoyed by Christ. Brothers and sisters, God wants to use you. He wants to use you, and I have news for you. You are more effective of a missionary than I am in your friend's life because they don't much care about my seminary degree. And a road trip with me sounds awkward at best. They don't know me. But with you, if you spend time with them, if you just do whatever with them, get coffee with them, play golf with them, well, now they might listen. God has uniquely placed you in a place where you can share Christ to them. And you might say, well, this is scary stuff. Like, I... I'm scared. Yeah, it is scary. But God has a way of silencing our fears. You might say, I don't know much about the Bible. Like, I just just don't know much about it. And that's okay. Because it doesn't take much. God doesn't require much for him to be on display. He doesn't need a whole lot to work with. I mean, look at this guy. He doesn't know much. He goes, hey, the guy they called Jesus. And then he's like, he's a prophet. And then he's like, I'm his disciple. And then he says, Lord. And he worships him. We'll see in a second here. 
Remember, our deficiency is God's opportunity to show up and show off. So I close with this final act here, and that's the delight. Let's look at verse 35 through 38, John 9. So starting in verse 35, and just notice briefly, notice this man's interaction with Jesus. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out of the synagogue, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the, and the guy answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And remember, he's never seen Jesus. He doesn't know that that's him. And Jesus said to him, verse 37, you have seen him. Think about those words. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, and he says one of the most orthodox things you could possibly say. He says, Lord, Jesus, you're Lord, and I believe. You're Lord, and I believe. And he worshiped him. So the thing with this guy is he, he suffers for his faith. He gets kicked out of the synagogue, we read. He can't be in that public space of worship. But I love that it doesn't much matter because now here he is with the private worship service with Jesus. How much better does it get than to be right there in front of Jesus, to see Jesus face to face and worship? How do you think that guy's worshiping? You think he's got his hands in his pocket? He's like, hey, Jesus, good to meet you. Or you think this guy is like on his face, crying, hugging Jesus, shouting out, thank you, you changed my life. I just picture this guy having such passionate worship, delighting in Jesus. What a day this guy has had. Right, I mean, in one day, he's gone from blind beggar to a missionary who sees 2020. That's all happened in one day. Here he is. And look at how his faith just blossoms through all of this. He says, Lord, Jesus, your Lord, and I believe. When we see Jesus for who he really is, it changes everything. And if you can't see Jesus, you can't make sense of anything. That's the whole point, is Jesus changes the way we see things. He's light. He illuminates. And here's what I leave you with. If we delight in Jesus, we can display him. If we delight in Jesus, if we see him and we say, Jesus is beautiful, then we're going to display him. But if you're not actively delighting in Jesus, and if I'm not actively delighting in Jesus, why are we going to talk about him? Why are we going to display him? Why are we going to open our mouth and talk about Jesus? Because we're not delighting in him. You know, you talk about the things that you delight in. You talk about them. You say, how was that, what do you think of that Bears game last week? Trubisky, not too shabby, huh? Because you like to watch football. Or you say, hey, did you see the episode of This Is Us last night? You know, what did Kevin do? That was crazy. You talk about the things that you like, the shows that you like, the food that you like. You just do. You, 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 you can't help it. And so how are we going to display Jesus if we're not delighting him? We need to delight in him, worship him, see him for who he is. Spend time with him. Talk to him. Get into his word. And when we delight in Jesus, we're going to display him. Remember, church, God opens our eyes so that we can help others' eyes be opened. It's not just so that we can see the light and we can be thankful for our xenon headlights and we can cruise down the road with no thought for the people in darkness around us. Like, I don't really care who's in darkness. I got the light and I am cruising. And some of us need to reorient our life. We need to change the way we think. And we got to stop driving 100 miles an hour with our high beams on and consider the people around us. What if I slow down a little bit? What if I invite unbelievers into my life? What if I help them see what it's like to live as a Christian? Not just what I look like or what I say, but what is life like for a Christian? 
oh, it's not that much different than for an unbeliever, except Jesus changes everything. And so maybe for the first time, they get to see Jesus illuminate their life and not as this repelling, offensive Jesus because they've only seen a self-righteousness that comes from us. Jesus brings sight to the blind and he makes the darkness tremble and he changes everything. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you so much for the light of Jesus. Thank you that you saw fit to open our eyes. God, we were there in blindness from birth, spiritually speaking. And you didn't see us suffer and have no compassion. No, you reached down and you took the scales off our eyes and you showed us the beauty of Jesus. Thank you. God, I owe that all to you. I don't owe that to my intelligence or my ability. I owe that to you. Thank you for healing me. Thank you for healing believers here.